Happy Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So Jim, what a, uh, what a thrill it is for us to welcome back. Uh, a remarkable guest who's willing to spend a little bit more time with us, uh, screenwriter Danny Bilson. Danny, welcome back to the Rocketeer Minute. Hey, thanks. Happy to be back. It's fun, and you you have joined us at one of one of my favorite minutes. This is uh, the the big showdown and uh, the kind of the uh, changing sides, simple turns, all kinds of narrative strategies that you just you just want to see. This is this is the the car crash, the big <laughs> the big mess of the end, and it's uh, it's beautiful. And uh, and thanks for writing the uh, the words that we're we're hearing coming out of the mouths of all these people. It's just a a beautiful dialogue. Yeah, that uh, you know that line that uh, that Billy has as Cliff with uh, you know flying commandos, the works. That whole thing is just uh, it's just the tone is just so perfect. Is this the scene where they, he says, "I might be a crook, but I'm 100 percent American"? Is that this? Is that this sequence? This scene? Uh, we're coming. We're coming. That'll be tomorrow. Okay. Okay. We'll okay. Because okay. okay. so, I get a lot of questions about that line. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we'll save that for the next uh, cast. I, I I do know you you've probably been whacked a couple of times about the Deutschmarks line because of uh, where where this is in history, and there weren't there weren't Deutschmarks, and there were Reichmarks. Reich uh, you know what? I've never been whacked until now. Oh, that, was, that, was, that was my first spanking on that one. Oh, no. <laughs> well, the gloves are off now, Bilson. <laughs> Sit back and listen. <laughs> Let's pull out the errata sheet. Let's see. Uh, but, uh, it, of of all the things that has to has to be wrong, that's it, that's forgivable, and it uh, it worked with a it worked with the crowd, and it it's alliterative. It's nice, and well, you know what's weird is that in those days there were research people who would go through scripts and look for stuff like that. And I'm surprised that no one ever caught that. I'm also surprised that we got that wrong because I'm kind of a history nut. But maybe I didn't really study the, the German economy until later of what happened after World War One and, and the devaluing of their money and stuff. Because I know it now. I think maybe at the time I, was, I, I hadn't learned that yet. But usually the research people would catch that. So actually it's a little disappointing. <laughs> Now I've re- I've wrecked I've wrecked <laughs> the rocketeer for the screenwriter I, of the rocketeer. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, I- <laughs> wow. Thanks for nothing, Jim O'Kane. Yeah. The show was going great. Until you upset the guest. Uh, one of one of Hal, Hal and my mutual friend uh, uh, Brian Fees had uh, written a a great book called uh, Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow. It's a great graphic mm. novel. He mentions in it the uh, the 27 men who uh, went to the moon. And twelve of them who had walked on the surface, and I had to point out to him. I said it was only twenty-four because some of them went twice. And <laughs> it, to this day, he still feels the the pain of the the three that he counted twice. So you're, you're that guy, Jim. Yes. I, I, I feel really bad. I feel really badly because that was oh, one of the first notes I'd ever written to him. It's funny though because uh, when Billy's on, uh, he's the, always the one who calls me the uh, the flea picker, the one who's oh, picking uh-huh. picking fleas, as he says. Oh, so. That's funny. Hey, we're all among friends. We all we all love the details. I think that's uh, that's fair to say. Danny, you talked uh, last time we we were on about uh, kindred spirits and things. And when I look at at your body of work, we talked a little bit about Zone Troopers and that movie. A lot of a lot of attention to detail in that movie. A lot of sort of the uniforms and things. Uh, 
very very well done dialogue of course right i don't i i don't know I've, we can do a separate zone troopers pot but i can't tell you that i have a lot of stories about that wardrobe from zone troopers just the first time we because it all came it was all authentic stuff it wasn't made costumes those were all uniforms from world war ii and I, i'll just say this that because it does play in the rocketeer in a certain way the first time i walked through the wardrobe department and saw the rack of the nazi uniforms with all the sort of skulls and the terror iconography all over it um it was very very creepy oh sure uh yeah it was very very creepy uh to see i also want to mention that you know paul and i wrote a graphic novel in 2007 called red menace i was just about to to bring that up but please go ahead i'm i'm a big fan of that one. Oh, thanks and jerry ordway did a magnificent job in the detail and the research and the drawing of it but that to us was our spiritual sequel to the rocketeer that book. Uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's in the same world. There's a kid who flies at the end and um, the tone of it and everything. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was 1950s, but it was, uh, that was our chance to do our sort of spiritual sequel to The Rocketeer. If not, we couldn't do a direct sequel and we are not involved in whatever they're doing now. But um, that's another story. I will let you guys ask some questions. Oh. Well, just about Red Menace very quickly. You know, um, I reread it uh, a couple of weeks ago when, when you and I had first gotten in touch about doing the show. And uh, um, I, I swear I see Wooly and Fitch, uh, you know, just, oh, just yeah. right there with all the other G-Men. And, and, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, except what then a terrific we had those, story. You know, we had those sort of mutant I think is what they were those those government agents it was all about blacklisting and right and that but I'm very proud of that book and and hopefully someday we can do more with it well I would love to see a film uh, yeah or, me too uh, an extend like a, a Netflix series or something like that would be would yeah. be terrific but it's uh it's was just another uh, just beautifully toned period piece that that really puts you right in the moment. Yeah, and I never got to talk to Dave Stevens about it because he was he was pretty ill when it, when it came out, and we we never um, I never got to get his take on it because I think I, I like to think he would have really liked it and he would have appreciated the art because I knew he was a fan of Jerry's. So oh, sure, you know one last tiny thing I'd made this note and I I'll I'll kick myself if I don't mention it quickly. There was a tiny Easter egg uh, at basically the very, very end post-credits uh, in Zone Troopers. So you were, you're kind of a post-credits uh, Easter egg hipster because you were doing it before it was cool. You know, sadly, we were doing a lot of things before they were cool, like adapting comics to films, and uh, now we're just, you know, sitting in the old folks' home going broke, watching everybody else cash in. I'm just kidding, <laughs> kidding, kidding, <laughs> kidding. Yeah. We hey. actually do have some, we have actually have some stuff in very active development. Uh, right now, so that I'm excited about. But let's talk about uh, the end of Zone Troopers because it does relate to the Rocketeer sort of tone and things like that. So the uh, and I'm talking about sort of that very very final frame before the credits disappear. Buy war bonds available in the lobby. And, yeah, and you, you saw that at the end of every movie back then. And you were talking about as a kid growing up watching the old movies and things. And that was well, anything you saw during wartime. You know, you you saw the newsreel shorts at the beginning and the little public service messages go out in the lobby. Buy your bonds. That was a that was a brilliant touch. Thank you. I had a ton of fun watching the movie. Please take this as a compliment when I tell you. But that little thing was, I think, was my favorite frame in the film, <laughs> except maybe except maybe some of the shots of the rocket ship, which were so cool. Yeah, you know. And again, as I said in the last podcast, that movie had a lot to do with uh, our involvement in the Rocketeer because Dave Stevens understood where we were coming from, and that's how we. I'm sorry about that noise. Dave Stevens um, knew where we were coming from, and that's how the partnership really began. I keep wondering when you were you went to the premiere of, of course yes. probably at, at 
at the El Cap. Mm-hmm. I think it was at the El, El yeah. Cap. Yeah, it was the it was the first movie. It was the actually the opening of that restored theater. Wow. So there was a huge event because it was it was the premiere film, and it was Disney had restored this theater on Hollywood Boulevard across from the Chinese. And they had closed Hollywood Boulevard and had an entire like fair, you know, with rides and everything. Wow. It was it was a really it was a big event because it was the opening of the theater and the premiere of the Rocketeer. I just keep thinking, you know, you worked in this for gosh, close to a decade uh, of just trying to get this thing on the screen. When you were sitting there, I, I remember I remember seeing this movie when it, the 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 weekend when it came out, and I, I remember this particular scene as watching it as the tide turns when. Uh, uh, you know Eddie's uh, Eddie's alliance shifts, and um, uh, his you know one of his henchmen turns to uh, Rondo Hatton and says, "Relax, Frankenstein, you ain't bulletproof." <laughs> I, 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 I can remember that getting it was like a rumble in the theater, and people are like, oh, 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 and and there's that feeling, that total suspension of disbelief, that that total you know. The audience is completely bought into this thing because you're like, "What's going to happen next? And what's going to happen?" Next? When you're sitting, when you were sitting there in the El Cap watching this with with everybody else, I'm, I'm sure the audience reacted in a similar manner. Is that what you work for? I mean, besides getting getting paid when you when the thing's done, no. is, is that the kind of thing that that you hope for when you're when you're working toward mean, the beginning of it all? I mean, do you mean an audience reaction for great moments in the film? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, the whole. I mean, yes. Of course. I mean, I think that it, it's the audience reaction is our reaction. When I say Paul and I, everything we do is pretty instinctive. We don't we don't follow any templates or rules. We never really read any screenplay books. It was just what would we want to see? What would what would what what do we want to see the most? Um, we had Paul and I had one writing teacher, and his name was John Milius, who of course wrote Apocalypse Now, Wind of the Lion, Conan. And we took a class with him for about 10 weeks that was an off-campus private thing in those days on in this little place on Hollywood Boulevard. And that's the only writing class that we ever had. And it was very, very influential because uh, John always said, if you're writing a movie, especially on spec, write the movie you want to see the most. And that's the most one of the most empowering things I ever heard. And, and um, he said a couple of other things that were very important. But two or three things that I've kept with me for my entire career. And then a few years ago, uh, over a couple of different projects, I was able to work with John. And uh, it's been just, a, it was, it's been a fantastic relationship with Paul and I and, and, and John um, over the years. And he, he is our writing mentor for sure. I, I see this, this moment and you, you, you feel that you feel the audience with you. I mean, you must be, when you're sitting there, you're like, yeah, this is, this is good. The audience really loves this part. When, do you try to avoid reading things, you know, like, like when you, when you read uh, reviews and stuff like that, do you just, when, when reviews start to go heavily negative, do you, do you just go through it and take it as current destructive criticism or this guy doesn't know what he's talking about? How, how do you generally? No, I, I, I've always looked at reviews as if there's something I agree with, that's good feedback. If I don't agree with it, I uh, ignore it. You know, it's just his opinion. I mean, I mean, it's my opinion, his opinion. And nobody knows what's. There's no right or wrong. It's just how we feel about stuff in 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 the arts. So um, reviews, really, it's really just a matter of if I agree with the criticism, yeah, it'll hurt a little bit. If I don't, it doesn't. When when I'm watching when I'm watching this thing as as they're as, as you're moving the different the different characters around, we have a couple of couple of different people with different stakes in the thing. Mm-hmm. As you're scripting it, are you just 
are you just mostly talking with Paul and saying, okay, what happens next? Or do you, do you act these things out to each other? I was just wondering how, how much of that happened. Our process in those days, it's different now. In the, we, were, we were early, early, early on computers. As soon as they were, it was anything. We were writing on an Atari 800. I'm also a big gamer, and so is Paul. So anything we could play a game on and write on was the platform we would have. But what we did was we split two monitors. So he'd, he would type in those days, and then I had a monitor facing me in a chair. And our relationship in those days was I tended to lay out most of the structure of things, and then he would do the pros and fill it out and I would watch him type and adjust. But dialogues, we both do dialogue and we do it together. And yes, sometimes we read it back to each other. You say it out loud. But in those days, our process was very, very slow because we would argue over every word and it was just absurd. Now, in the last year, since we've really been actively writing together again, we've been through a lot over the years. We've always been together and we've always done a certain amount of writing, it's, it, which is absolutely true. We've always been, even when I was a video game executive, he was the head of story at the video game company. So we, but now we've been working together so long that he takes a scene, I take a scene, we'll talk, maybe I'll be driving down to work in the morning and we talk on the phone and we can just work out a scene really quickly and then I'll write mine, he'll write his, we pass them back and forth, we do notes on them and we keep moving. So now we are literally like three or four times as fast as we were back in the day. We can write a script really fast. Does that just come from uh, the trust you've built up after working together for yes. so many decades? That's yeah, terrific. we are a singular. Vo After forty years, we're a singular voice. I know his bullshit. He knows. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I know his stuff. He knows my stuff. You know, he still has his peccadilloes, and I'm sure I have mine. I tend to be the one who reaches for a crazy idea, and he says that's stupid. And finally, I convince him <laughs> that it's a great idea. I can think of certain ones, but the one I, I hate to go back to Zone Troopers, but Mittens punching Hitler was one that he hated, <laughs> and that I still think is one of the best ideas I ever had. But that's most people haven't seen that film, although I I recommend it wherever you can find it. Well, there's there's going to be a, a sudden surge on Amazon. Yeah, there was a like. there was a Blu-ray release not too long ago. That's the one that I. Oh yeah, I we did up. we did a commentary. Yeah, Paul and I did a commentary. I, I, I I'll be honest and tell you, so I watched it first without, but I think I'm going to need to go back and watch it again with the commentary and and uh, and see what that's all about. But that yeah, I kind of remember running out of gas <laughs> during that commentary. But it starts out, and I sure, I'm certain we tell a lot of stories at the beginning. You know that that uh, whole movie really had a uh, and I and, and again this is a I mean this is a compliment. Not that it was derivative in any way, but it had a, a very Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos kind of vibe to it. Well, it's and, wholly intentional, and uh, <laughs> which to me is is terrific. Those were the even before I got into superhero comics as a kid, the comics I was reading were Sergeant Fury stuff, and, and me too. It. So, and also the films of World War II, oh, especially sure. the B movies. Yeah. So yeah, like Battleground kind of a thing, or just even that, more yeah. cheesy because Battleground is pretty serious. The ones that were, you know, gee whiz, Sarge, all that stuff. And yeah, from the comics. But I don't want to take our audience too far away no. from the Rocketeer. Although the Zone well, Troopers, they're, they're, of they're course. Coming with, they're coming with us. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, They'll go when we tell them. The beauty of that film, and it plays out again in the Rocketeer, is we were able to get away with that dialogue. And in Zone Troopers, when I see it now, it's the most naive, innocent film where Paul and I just did what we wanted to because there was very low risk because the money was so low. And then in The Rocketeer, again, as I said in the last podcast, uh, really, it's really noticeable that 30s dialogue, because you don't see that even in period films. Now, current, I don't mean yeah. films of the period, right. I mean period films now, they won't go there, and maybe they shouldn't, 
But in 1990 or 91, we were able to do that. And I think it does help set some of the tone. I, I can tell a story about that that is maybe difficult in some ways. But we were, there's a couple things, you haven't asked me anything negative. There's a couple things that Paul and I were unhappy about with The Rocketeer. And if I could, if everybody just loves it, so, I mean, I can. I don't want to do any dream no, crush. Go ahead, Pro- prove yeah, us wrong. Exactly. Um, so although Alan Arkin is, is a phenomenal actor and, and been a favorite of mine for since I was a kid and wait until dark, that was the cat. His take on that was not what we had in mind. We wanted William Demarest. We wanted a fast talking 1930s guy. And he had this rhythm that was, oh, Clifford. And we were just like, what? <laughs> like when we were seeing dailies, it was, there's a couple ish instances like that. Paul Servino also, we wanted Joe Pesci. And, and, and what you'll see from what Paul and I wanted was we wanted Howard Hawks pacing in the film. Oh, yeah. And we couldn't get it. And there was a there was a sequence in the Bulldog Cafe that the pacing was so slow that Joe went back and reshot it. And, and I'm not going to say it was because of our complaints. Maybe we needled the producers enough, and maybe there was another reason he reshot it. But when he reshot it, it was still he never really got that Howard Hawks pace. And we thought that um, we wished if there's anything I wished for that film was that it had that energy in the dialogue scenes that he that he did so well in the action scenes okay we, we've got i gotta ask where in which particular bull, bulldog scene is it the mr ketchup bottle part or is i it believe the, uh, it's it's between cliff and jenny and i think it's uh oh so the the, the spilling of the soup and and all that era I, yes okay. i believe it's that scene yeah. um again i haven't gone back and looked at looked at this stuff but and when I say this, let me put all that in a box because everything else we loved and we still love to this day. And you know what? Alan Arkin is PV and that pace is the pace of the film and it is what it is. I'm just talking, every writer's got a complaint and, and those were ours, but now they don't matter at all because the film transcends our little peccadillos back in the day. And I'm very proud of it. I think Joe did a great job. I will say, and maybe you all noticed this, that the most the most pure sequence in the film, and the film where I the, the aspect of the film where I felt it nailed Dave's work in the comics and our adaptation of it was the entire sequence at the airfield the first time Cliff flies. That sequence, and with Polito saying it's all part of the show, and, right. and that. That stuff was magic, and I think that's my favorite part of the film because that aspect of the film was absolutely captured what Dave and Paul and I wanted to do from the beginning, which was really get the most pure adaptation of what he wrote in the books. And that was, that was written before Paul and I wrote books with him. And that, to me, is the most successful part of the film. I think the whole film is successful, and it is the most gratifying film or thing I've ever done in my career and the fact that it's appreciated all these years later as a Disney classic is uh, really really um, an achievement of a lifetime goal so when I say a little negative thing it's just a writer being a little crabby because uh, (laughs) I just wanted to give you that perspective because that's what Paul and I thought when it was made but now do we care not at all we just uh, we really love it I want to tell you an anecdote about um, how I encountered uh, the best encounter I ever had with people who love the Rocketeer was two years ago. I was invited to work at Imagineering on some blue sky work on Star Wars land, as well as um, a, a role playing game we did in the park called Legends of Frontierland. Really? What I encountered when I got to Imagineering 
And at first I gave a talk there because I've been, as you may or may not know, I'm the chairman of the uh, interactive media and games department at USC. And so I have an expertise in interactive. Uh, when I say an expertise, I know interactive. I know it's great. You know how expert I am at anything. I don't know the work. You can judge the work, but the fan, the biggest fan base, Rocketeer fan base I ever crashed into was the Imagineers today at Disney because they're most of a lot of them are in their 30s a lot of them it's their fa- and they all know Disney films because it's part of their it, they wouldn't be there if they didn't love Disney and they they know the films of Disney and it feels to me like the Rocketeer is one of the most beloved live action films maybe out of the era for sure of the Katzenberg Eisner era for sure it wasn't when it came out, but now to walk in there and people handing me DVD boxes to sign <laughs> of people who I admire, right? Because I'm a huge fan of the Imagineers and I'm a huge fan of uh, the Disney parks. That was kind of awesome. And I even went into my uh, bag of tricks. You know, Paul and I collected everything and we had an assistant who would stash everything. So we had a, we have a storage space. We have all kinds of Rocketeer stuff. We have every piece of merchandise that was released back then, as well as things like the flying fold-up Rocketeer that Pizza Hut gave out. If if you guys don't have those, I would be happy to send you some because (laughs) we still have lots of... It's actually... I can see a a whole tub of this stuff right now because I've got it in my office at home. Uh, Hal will be pulling up in front of your house uh, very shortly. Can't talk. Gotta go. Gotta drive. (laughs) No, I will send you guys because... I will send you guys a few of these things. Just you'll send me the address. Uh, oh, anyway, terrific. ask me some questions because I'm defocusing and I'm just yeah, going I, all I, over the place. I do. I, I just want to. I just want to say you were talking about the uh, the flying sequence. We're gonna we'll, we'll go off to different minutes, but the 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 flying sequence. I did appreciate, even though you're never supposed to really get into direct exposition. You did a great job in just two lines. With uh, uh, Cliff climbs up into the. You know, he's he's there five minutes late for the air show, and uh, he walks up to uh, uh, Bigelow, and he says, and and uh, he he says to PV, uh, Malcolm hasn't been in the uh, in a, behind the uh, in a cockpit for twenty five years. What's he What's he trying to do? And he said he's trying to save your job, Cliff. But if he drifts into those race lanes, he's going to kill people. Right. Uh, it, it, and that you know, it's like you you laid out the stakes for the audience who you know hopefully everybody got it but that lays out the stakes for what they're going to see in the next five minutes so sure. it, it was a nice direct line but it just pulled you right in it's like oh that's what i have to worry about now yeah and again because i don't remember i mean was that in the comic i don't know i mean it might not have been but we certainly wrote it yeah Either yeah way. It, it, it wasn't i mean it, it wasn't there as as clear and uh-huh. uh well you know it, we, did, we, it, we did contribute in some way i guess paul and i <laughs> there, there. In this particular minute that we're watching, um, as Eddie changes sides, it, you do have a little bit of the Howard Hawks thing where uh, Eddie points the, points his gun and says, "Talk fast, Sinclair," and and Cliff jumps in with, "You tell him, Eddie," and then Eddie turns back and says, "Shut up." Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nobody's nobody's oh, confirmed yeah. yet as to whose side who's on yeah. who's on. But uh, well, of course, and you guys have identified this. The, the the fun part of that sequence was really what comes later, and it, and it's that when it comes to an enemy of America, suddenly we're all on the same side, right? And that was a dynamic that, um, that was us for sure. And, and that, uh, that whole, that's what you're, t- the whole change during that sequence there of gangsters versus 
our hero versus all versus the Nazis. I mean, that was a lot of fun to play with. And that was in every version of the script. Yeah, it, it just really, I mean, the, the, the script really sings at that point. It's just such a, it's such a beautiful thing. And the, the, I, try, I can't really describe the wave that comes over the audience as they realize what's happening. But I just, it, it's, it's fun watching this with first timers watching. It's like going, oh, I get it. And it's, uh, it's just a really nice feeling when you're with other people watching, watching the film in the dark. It's yeah. Just, it's, it, it, it's, that's why you go to movies. I mean, this, right. is, this is it right and here. Such a nice, too, a nice touch as well to give, uh, to give Jenny the line about the secret room and the Germans on the radio. Because, you know, Jenny is the is the damsel in distress in this in this picture, but only to a very very modest degree. You know, she uh, she never fully falls for Neville Sinclair and his uh, his seduction thing. She even before she figures out there's something odd going on, she keeps him at arm's length. She's you know she's fooling him a bit after the whole chloroform sequence and everything else. It was really nice to her to give her a little bit of a thing at the end, and instead of just just sort of whimpering wide-eyed she's got a little bit of uh, extra information to add to reinforce uh, cliff's story oh yeah i mean the the strange thing about the sinclair uh, jenny relationship was that we didn't write anything about originally about sinclair is actually falling for her that was all the actor's idea uh timothy dalton's really? idea and it was not i can tell you you know who these people were to us um you know, Neville Sinclair was Basil Rathbone as, a, as, as him at his most evil in certain films. And, and of course, Neville Sinclair and the whole Neville Sinclair gag, and that was completely created by Paul and I, was based on the rumor that Errol Flynn was a Nazi. I mean, that, sure, that's yeah. obvious. Right. But that, we, we just jumped off of that. And, you know, when you read that stuff about people with the secret radio and the Hollywood Hills and stuff like that, that was all stuff we gathered from stories of the period and, and, and inspired that. But we never, it was never our intention that Neville Sinclair, in the middle of this incredibly intense call it a crime that was being committed that he was somehow going to fall in love with her. That came from the actor and we did our best to make that work. Um, but that wasn't our idea at all. Um, we thought um, uh, we're big believers in the good guys only as good as the bad guys is, is bad. And it doesn't mean that the bad guy should be one dimensional. And some people could argue, well, oh, it gave him more dimension. I thought it was a little silly that he would be, with all of the stakes of this, that he would be falling for her. But, but that's part of the collaborative process of making films. And it's also when we're having podcasts 25 years later, I can <laughs> say whatever I want because, uh, you know, I don't know, my career may be over anyway. But, you know, uh, I, I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's, I think the perspectives of in the making of it and those things are interesting. And that's, that's what I'll talk about is how Paul and I felt at the time about some of these things. People can disagree with us completely. And we may have been completely wrong. It might be much better that he was swooning over her, but that wasn't our intention. What was Neville's vanity part of the original script like the you know the little bits like i'm part of the, part of the reason i'm understanding that he had he's kind of falling for uh, for jenny is because it kind of proves his power over her but like you know just the little things like where he's cleaning out the spinach between his teeth and uh you, you know, know I, i'll give you got okay so that's the great stuff that tim tim was doing and i'm sure that was tim that's that's really yeah. kind of very creative actor business that an actor of his 
quality, and he, and he is a great actor, will add those kind of bits. That was not written in a script. Those, those are those little pieces of business that great actors bring to a role. You know, speaking of, uh, of actors and, uh, and then you looking back with hindsight, Danny, I want to touch back on something you brought up earlier. Just very quickly, you talked about in your mind you had somebody like Joe Pesci in mind for, the, uh, for Eddie Valentine. And then, and then we talked mm-hmm. about Alan Arkin and both of them. Neither of them, uh, neither Paul Servino or Alan Arkin brought that Howard Hawks pacing that you love so much. Did you ever have somebody else in mind, even as you were writing it, did you have sort of a fantasy cast in mind for PV? You know, sometimes we see people from other eras, and we just saw William Demarest. PV oh, was William wow. Demarest. Yeah, you it know, was he, That really looks like him in the comics, too. I never thought about that. Yeah, it actually is is uh, it, it's Doug Wildey, as I recall, because okay. Dave would Dave would draw from reference, as you know. He Cliff looks like Dave Stevens right. yeah. in the comics, and I believe Doug Wildey. And this is just I have to go back in my memory. I remember the name, and I believe he was a mentor of Dave's, and I believe he may have been a gosh, I don't. I get a little confused whether he was an aircraft guy or a or a art comic artist. I think he was a comic artist maybe from the 50s, but I think he was one of Dave's mentors, but the name absolutely Doug Wildey is who PV is drawn after in the comics. Okay. Hmm. I don't have all the background on it, but it sticks in my head that that was the name and it's been a while, so I don't recall. I've got to ask about uh, Wooly and Fitch, too. I mean, I was always picturing uh, Wooly and Fitch being James Gleason and William Demarest. That's how I would have cast uh-huh. them back then. It's- well, look... Wooly and Fitch were G-men yeah. of from the films that Paul and I loved. Um, there's a, you want to hear some Easter eggs? Um, there's a few in the film. Uh, Spanish Johnny is from a Bruce Springsteen song. I'm a huge <laughs> Spanish Johnny. I was not expecting that. Spanish Johnny drove into the underworld la- last night, ah. uh, and you could just it goes and goes and goes. And um, there's a couple of other. There's actually kind of an off-color one. Am I allowed to do off-color yes, in can, here? we can work around it. That's fine. Nobody really picked up, and a Disney didn't pick this up, and this is pretty off-color, but it's in there. The woman who runs the boarding house. Mrs. Pie. Of all, huh. You get it now? <laughs> I didn't okay. before, but I do now. <laughs> okay. So that's one of those ones that, you know how the Disney artists sneak stuff into stuff, and you yeah. go, oh, my God. <laughs> that was ours in The Rocketeer, because... Um, we kind of got that slang from uh, the actor and comic Tim Thomerson, who we did every single film we ever did, except The Rocketeer, I think he appeared in. And, and yeah, Tim used to use that reference, and we slipped that in. And then there's a really stupid one, and the address of their house was our extension at Warner Brothers, where Paul and I, uh, our office ah, for many years I over there. I think it was 1635. 1635. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, our, 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 our phone number at Warner's was 9541635. <laughs> uh, that's just baloney. Uh, Mrs. Pie is a little more interesting, and uh, Spanish Johnny is interesting to me because uh, one of my best friends was Clarence Clemens in the E Street Band, so uh, that was a little uh, tribute to oh, that. Oh, no kidding. Oh, okay. Well, uh, now, now, now I'm going through the you – know, Goose, Goose, Millie, and, uh, and Malcolm were all from the, from the comic book. Those were days. Yeah, yeah those were days. Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, Gosh, uh, and then Mike Pete, Mike Petey. I'm trying to remember the other guys besides Spanish Johnny that were in his uh, gang. Yeah, I, that's the one I remember because I wrote yeah, that in there, and you know, nobody blanked. It's a great line. Right. I mean, Spanish Johnny just as a name is perfect for yeah for the period. Yeah, right? exactly. it's like something out of the Sting. You know, I mean, the, the yeah, Sting fit, had yeah. all the fits right in there with Tommy totally two times from, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's totally from the Springsteen song. <laughs> 
That's um, amazing. Well, you, you know, yeah. you got me on here. I got the yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. them coming. <laughs> this is like the the you know Ark of the Covenant thing. It's um, but listen, let, let's let's talk about this a little bit more tomorrow. We're gonna we're gonna get get further into uh, the an hour and a half into the movie at minute ninety. But uh, we'll we'll pick some more of this up uh, tomorrow on the show and finish okay. out the week. So uh, for f- folks who want to continue the conversation, we are always available on social media, all the usual places: Twitter, um, Rocketeer Minute. Facebook, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute, the great big website, rocketeerminute.com, where you can catch up on all the previous episodes that we've been talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, watch. Also, you can go out there with some cool swag. Um, uh, you can order Blu-rays. If you don't if you don't have a copy of this movie, I don't understand why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> but uh, go out go out to Amazon, buy something, and, and get Danny gets 12 cents for every uh, Blu-ray that they sell. Six, so make sure you, six cents. Six, okay. I got to split it with back. Paul. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, get get out there and, and buy buy some copies of that. There's all kinds of cool swag. Uh, also, if you haven't signed up, go to iTunes or Google Play is the other one. We can uh, you can get the last uh, <laughs> the final twenty episodes. Our school can be delivered to you hot and fresh every morning, Monday through Friday. Uh, but why don't we finish up the week here tomorrow? So join us here uh, on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out. <laughs>